Hello folks, my name is Jeremy Kirkland and this is Blamo. This week I spoke with Guy Berryman of Applied Art Forms. You probably know him from many other things, his magazine The Road Rat, or most likely a band called Coldplay. And look, I get it, they're one of the biggest bands on earth, they've sold over 100 million copies. Trust me, I'm sure it would have been amazing for me to only talk to him about Rush of Blood to the Head. But this chat was all about his clothing brand that he came out with, which I've just been mildly obsessed with since. Uh, the brand is called Applied Art Forms, and good lord, it is incredible. I gotta say, as an aside, I think folks like Guy always are in a bit of an uphill battle because when when people hear about someone from another industry or career that is getting into clothes, sometimes they stop and maybe they're like, eh, roll their eyes and, and they don't get it. But Guy gets it. I mean, to be honest, he was studying design before Coldplay even started. I mean, as you'll hear, we talk all about it. He gets it. The clothes are incredible. The design's amazing. The storytelling's amazing. I'm just, it was such a pleasure to chat with him about this. Guy and I chat about his early training in design, how being in a band wasn't part of the original plan, building a community with applied art forms, and how his garment archived helped inspire the brand and what comes next. Guy Berryman, huge pleasure to talk to you. It's great to talk to you too, Jeremy. Thanks for having yeah. me on the, uh, on the podcast. Oh, no, this is great. So I'm going to clear the air very quickly because otherwise people are going to put me on blast. We know that you're in one of the largest bands in history in Coldplay, which is amazing. But today we're not going to talk about Coldplay at all. There's amazing Stern interviews and things like that that you've all done with Coldplay. And if you want to hear that, you can pop on over there. But this is more about your clothing brand that you started, which I got to say, for you know, a person who may not be known for being the clothing designer to launch a clothing brand. It's really good. Oh, like, well, thank you. Really, really good. Uh, I'm so happy to, I'm so happy to hear that. It's, you know, it's a huge amount of work. Um, yeah. You know, I think that that's one of the things which surprised me most about starting a label was, was just the sheer relentless intensity uh, that's involved in, in, in getting a garment from concept to prototype to, you know, final production, um, as well as all of the other stuff that you have to do to run a label, which is just involves so many things, which I never even contemplated before I started the label, you know, building an e-commerce platform you know, running a social yep. media, you know, creating content, doing, you know, doing model shoots, doing styling, um, you know, doing press. Um, it, it, it just never ends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're like already doing music, which isn't, you know, that's not really something you can just kind of not do at all. <laughs> sure. Sure. But I think, you know, I find, I, I find myself, you know, for instance, if I'm traveling, you know, we launched our, um, album a few months ago and we've been doing promotional trips across Europe and in America with the band. And most of the time you end up with a huge amount of downtime mm. um, on your hands. So th there's always time to, you know, to work on other projects. Right. Right. You mean just like in the sense that a lot of the stuff is kind of hurry up and wait sort of thing? Absolutely. I mean, I've spent, you know, the last 25 years of my life <laughs> with that kind of mantra. <laughs> You know, just wait, waiting for the end of the day before you go on, you know, perform a, uh, 
you know, a song on TV, on a TV show, which lasts three minutes and then that's your day done. Oh, geez. Yeah. So there's uh, plenty of time to work on, on the label. And um, we launched the brand in the middle of the pandemic, bravo, um, which was, which was challenging. Um, and so when we got into the pan, our design studio is based in Amsterdam and, you know, up until the pandemic really kicked in, I was traveling to Amsterdam every few weeks. Um, mm. To work in the studio. Oh, you're not based there. I thought you were living there. No, I live in the UK. Okay. Well, makes um, sense. So we ended up having to design a lot of garments and collections remotely over Zoom. And we were, we were sending prototypes, samples to each other from, from, the, you know, from, the, from the mills, from the factories to mm. Amsterdam, then from Amsterdam to me. And I would sketch notes on the, on the garment and send it back over to the guys. and. So we, we really had to find a, a, a pretty efficient way of working when everything was locked down. Right. Yeah. Well, let's jump back a bit because, you know, obviously this wasn't something that you just kind of flipped the switch and turn on overnight. Like, where did your relationship with, you know, I mean, because I think externally, a lot of people know you for cars, design, but where did a lot of the clothes stuff kick in? Well, I think if you go back to... um when I met my band, which was, we met each other in London. We were in college together, uh, all, oh, yeah, studying, school. Uh, yeah. all, all studying different subjects. Right, right. Um, it was University College London, and I was studying mechanical engineering, and the rest of the guys were studying different subjects. But we were all musicians. We all, we all came to college hoping we might find like-minded musicians to form a band with. And, mm-hmm. um, but we were all studying different subjects. So I think th- this fashion label is really born out of those early disciplines that I had, which was mechanical engineering and architecture. I studied architecture as well. And I suppose a few years ago, around about the time I was turning 40, which is always this moment of inflection in, in, in people's lives, I think, when you, you know, 40 is the, is the halfway point where you look back at everything that you have done and then you look forward to everything that you, that you would like to be doing. And for Absolutely. me, I wanted to really re-engage with this process of design and manufacturing, which was something I always had a huge interest in since I was a teenager. And, it, you know, it's strange that it, it ended up as a fashion label because I studied engineering and architecture because I thought I might be designing cars or I might be designing buildings or I might be designing furniture or lamps. Mm. But I suppose in the last uh, 15, 20 years, I also developed an interest in collecting garments. So I have quite a huge archive of military garments, vintage military garments and workwear garments with this kind of sense of uh, utilitarian uh, design, which I always gravitate towards in, in any field of design. Um, plus, I also started collecting a lot of Helmut Lang from the 1990s and Margiela pieces and Catherine Oh, Kath- shit. Okay. Okay. So, so I was just, I, I was really just amassing this um, ever expanding uh, archive of, of clothes. Some of the pieces I wear, but some of the pieces aren't really wearable. And I got to the point where I was just questioning, well, what, why am I collecting all of these pieces? What's, what's the purpose of this? It's just getting bigger. It's taking up more space. Right. Um, and then what I realized I was looking at was basically an archive of ideas, which could be um, repurposed into completely new styles. 
So for instance, a lot of our outerwear basically contains details and ideas from five or six different vintage British military or Navy jackets right. or American um, kind of uh, US Army pieces. And I'll just choose a detail from one, a detail from another, and I'll combine them into, into a new style. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, looking at your stuff, you see that there's an appreciation to the manufacturing, to the textiles. And it's, by the way, I say this as a good way. You don't look at it and say, oh, that's, this guy likes Margiela. Or, oh, this is, you know, someone interned at Margaret Howell sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's very, in the best way, almost like this amalgamation of like silhouettes. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I was like, this is real design because a lot of times, you know, I have a lot of friends who work in clothing design and for them, they're like, it's geometry. It is not about, um, you know, like flashiness or labels everywhere. It's, it's about silhouettes and shapes. Absolutely. And that is, you know, like seeing, uh, like the denim you have. And then, I mean, that just the beautiful, the military coat with like the, the multiple sort of pieces inside. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, it's incredible. It's really good. Well, I think the main principle for actually pushing forward with the label was based around the idea that the, the, the world probably doesn't need another mid-level brand. So we took the decision early on to make sure we were making garments to, to the best of our ability by selecting the most elevated fabrics, by mm. uh, really cu- making sure we put so much thought into the construction detailing. Yeah. Um, to make something which is ultimately going to last forever. I think, I think overall the, the, the styles um, are timeless. You know, mm-hmm. they, a lot of them have been derived from garments which are 70 years old. So my, my hope is that our garments will look better and better as time goes on. You know, as the decades go by, you know, these jackets, we use a lot of ventile for our outerwear, which was a... Yeah. which was a fabric developed for the Royal Air Force in the 1940s. And it's just a, a very beautiful, densely woven cotton twill. And it ages like a raw denim. It fades and it will yeah. kind of take on patina. Um, so my hope is really to put garments out into the world, which will have a very long lifespan, which is our focus for sustainability. I know, you know every fashion label at the moment has got a slightly different um, angle on how they approach sustainability. Right. <laughs> But, but, but ours really comes from the fact that we want these garments to be in circulation for a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, Ralph Lauren talks a lot about designing that in designing clothes, it's more about designing the world that they belong in. But, so with that in mind, what is the kind of world that you've been designing for? I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, the, the world is somewhat crazy right now, but I think sustainability and like you were saying, is a new thing that I feel a lot of designers, some give service to, and others are like, no, no, this really drives how we're trying to function. Um, yeah, I'm just curious how that, that's kind of playing out with you and the, the world that you're making. I think the world that, that we're trying to occupy is basically the world that I live in and love, which is, which is really, it's about um, celebrating good design mm-hmm. actually i i don't feel completely comfortable with 
the term fashion brand for applied art forms. I think we can kind It's somewhat of, pejorative now, right? It's interesting how that word has evolved. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, I feel like clothing brand or clothing company or some kind of more old-fashioned supply company is, is something mm. I feel more affinity to. Um, you know, we live in, you know, the fashion world is dominated at the moment by, uh, by streetwear, you know, and street, streetwear now occupies the kind of the upper echelons of, you know, fashion and the luxury houses. Yeah. Um, which is something that I hugely respect and admire, but that's not the kind of clothes that I like to wear. Um, I, f I feel much more affinity with, uh, Japanese and, and Korean labels than i do with european and american if i'm if i'm completely honest no please it's, it's you know it's plain you know i i like plain clothes i like strong silhouettes i like clothes that are built to last mm -hmm. um and and i suppose we're just trying to find the people out there in the world of which there are many um who will f who will discover the brand and 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 completely understand where we're coming from right uh, what are some of the Japanese brands you like? The reason why I ask is, I mean, 99% of the people that come on the show when we talk about clothes, everything comes back to Japan, you know, um, whether it's through textile design or even suiting, right? I mean, people talk about, the, you know, we've talked about the precision of Japanese Italian, I'm air quoting there, clothes, into which, you know, the example I always give is in Naples, if you get a bespoke suit made, the tolerance is two to three centimeters, um, which is quite a bit when you think about something that has to have a precise fit. Yep. Versus Japan, it is like two to three millimeters. <laughs> so yeah. well, there's I a big Japan. difference. <laughs> I love Japan. I love Japanese culture. And I think as somebody who's creative and really um, appreciates engineering and, and craft and precision, yeah. which was basically my training, I, I, I suppose that's why I gravitate towards Japan. And, you know, we make all, all of our pants, for instance, our cargo pants and our denim, they're all Japanese um, produced. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to make more there. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to make everything there, to be honest, but it's expensive. <laughs> Incredibly. <laughs> and I, I think when you're launching a new brand, it's, it, it's always a, a challenge between um, making the things that you want to make and not scaring people away with the prices. So, right. Um, I think, um, I think J Japan is, is a place that I will always want to spend time in and I will always want to discover more about. And I suppose, mm -hmm. you know, Comme de Garçon and Yoji Yamamoto are, you know, two, two labels that spring to mind that I've huge ad admiration for. Um, but the list is almost endless. Did you ever get into Visvim? Well, it's funny because I actually feel um, Visvim is the brand which we are most aligned with. So, you know, if you're, try if you're trying to tell people very quickly, if you're trying to describe the, uh, you, you know, applied art forms to somebody very quickly, I always right. feel Visvim is the easiest one to reference because we share a lot of um, similarity in terms of the styles that we create. I think we share a lot of similarity in, in, in terms of... Um, just the care and the attention to detail. Mm -hmm. um, and we're actually pushing into a very interesting project for um, basically autumn, winter 2023, um, which is going to involve a, involve a dyeing process, which we are working on in, in, in Holland, where we're actually, we're actually in the process of growing a field of uh, crops at the moment, which is basically like a European indigo plant. 
um, and we have a we, we have a, a selection of styles, woolen styles, which will be coming in uh, autumn, winter, twenty twenty three, which will which will all be made. The wool's going to be made in Amsterdam, in in Holland, and it's going to be dyed with our own with our own crops. Oh. And I feel you know, <laughs> it's it's almost a form of madness taking things to this. Um, to this extreme level but i think you know it's a small team but we're all incredibly passionate about making just super interesting um clothing which has been exceptionally crafted yeah well i mean i feel like not that that's easy to do but it's not as daunting or as intimidating with if you're not trying to do it at an insane scale right i mean to to the ralph lauren comparison it's just like how many pieces are they making? Let alone how many pieces are they making that don't even get used? And I mean, it's just, it's, you know, hundreds of thousands. And if you're, you know, a, a, a small brand like yourself, you're worrying about, I don't know, a hundred pieces, you know, I mean, which is still a lot. that's the beauty of it. That's the, yeah. because we, we're producing in small batches. Yeah. Um, so we can really maintain quality control. We can message about, okay, well, you're buying one of these jackets and it's one of a hundred pieces or it's one of... Th- you know, 30 pieces in this particular colorway. Um, and for me, I think it's an interesting position to be in because I don't have any shareholders in the company. I don't have to answer to anybody. Yeah, you're not some VC funded, you need 8x growth in a year. <laughs> I, I don't need to reduce the production costs. I don't need to, right. I don't need to uh, increase profitability by, um, by, by lowering the, uh, the, the quality of, of the garments. Um, right. And... And frankly, I hope I never will have to be in that position. I don't need this to be um, a, a huge brand. It needs to. Mm-hmm. It needs to grow to a point where it's um, at, at least kind of washing its face from a financial point of view. Sure. And if we can push into profitability, then that would be wonderful. But this um, th- this is really designed to be kind of an artisan fashion label, um, mm-hmm. a- a- and it really needs to retain that kind of core. Uh, quality, I think, you know, that, that, that people have um, discovered and know us to be, to, you know, to be producing. Yeah. I think in a way, because of the internet and because of kind of like the democratization of fashion with social media, it's brands are more set up to do that in the sense that you don't really need to, you know, you know, be the, the next Ralph Lauren that sells across everywhere and has tons of stores. You can just, I mean, you have a very large following uh, that's from the music side, but also you have a lot of people um, who are into you from, you know, the the cars and the watches and all that. And that right there is a significant customer base. (laughs) And it's like, if you're just reaching them, you you know, you're good. You you would think so, but it's actually not quite as straightforward as that, because although there are a lot of people who are aware of who I am and what I'm doing through Instagram, Mm -hmm. they. Applied Art Forms is is quite a niche brand. It's not oh, for, oh extremely know, yeah, it's, yeah. It, you know it's not for everybody. So actually, um, we we don't we are really pushing on finding that right customer for the brand at the moment, mm-hmm. and that you know and and marketing and uh, all of this stuff. You know it's hard work. Um, I think um, if you're a Coldplay fan and you're following me, you're not necessarily going to want to buy mm. something from Applied Art Forms, um, and and that's. That could be because it's just not your style, or it could be because it's just it's quite expensive. It's relatively expensive, and although it's not the most 
expensive brand out there, um, I think sometimes the price, you know, can, yeah, can I think, and this factor. is where like storytelling stuff comes in, which it, you know, I can see that you all have really weaned into more because, and maybe it's just, I've been brainwashed by the internet, but I'm like, I don't mind paying a lot of money for something <laughs> if I know that the, um, the manufacturing is there and there's a transparency in the design and the labor and people are getting a fair amount, you know? And also, especially with my mindset now where it's like, I don't need 30 jackets. I have probably more than that, unfortunately, but it's like, yeah. I'm trying to be like, no, no, no. How do I reduce this to one? Like I've been collecting watches and stuff for years. And I look at the watches I have and I'm very lucky, but I'm also like, I'm really only wearing one watch at a time. Like how, how do I reduce, reduce, you know, the, the whole, you know, I watched the Dieter Rams documentary and the whole just like less, but better, less, but better. How do I keep doing this? It's hard. It's hard. It's funny you say that because I just, in the last couple of days, I just went into all mm -hmm. of my wardrobe spaces in the house. And, and I just pulled out, a, a, you know, a mountain of clothes that I just never wear. And I just decided, look, I haven't, if I haven't worn these things in the last 12 months, I'm never going to be wearing them. So, and it feels so good to just have mm -hmm. fewer objects around you. It, feel, it, it makes me feel much lighter knowing that there isn't a kind of a closet over there, which is just stuffed full of junk. And every time I open the doors, the thing, you know, it all just kind of falls out on me. So I com I completely agree. I think this is, and I think yeah. applied art forms really plays into that kind of mindset because you know the the, the coat that you referenced, which yeah, so is good. our modular parka <laughs> system. You know, it has a shell. It has different liners you can put inside. If you know, depending on the temperature outside, it's got different colors that you can start. You know, so it has like a a full hood. It has an officer collar. It has a, a concealed hood collar, and you can zip them all on or off in different combinations. And I think what we're trying to say with this kind of design and the materials that we've chosen is look, you can buy this jacket. It's extremely versatile. It's extremely stylish uh, and timeless. Um, and the longer you have it, the more you wear it, mm. the better it's going to look as the sun fades it and as it creases and it takes on your life and it takes on patina. So that is absolutely something I completely understand this, this kind of less, um, less, but better. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of Yeah. Lines. I mean, hearing him make decisions that are um, complete when they're made is, is something that I've really uh, wanted to lean into more as a person who's like continuing to try to like run a business and consult and stuff. I mean, it's, it's just like, you know, I watched him talk about like making the Vitsu stuff and just the decision you say it and it's, it's done versus I think like, especially with design, a lot of times when you're working with designers, there is an ego mentality that is brought to the table. I mean, it's true across many forms, music, et cetera, but like you see where it's like, no, 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 this decision is, it's emotionless. This is the, this is the right decision. We're going to do this. And I, I, it's interesting to really see that. I think I, th I, I really gravitate towards this, this notion of form follows function. Right. You know, I see people that are designing chairs um, in this day and age, and you look at this chair and you think, how, is, how could you ever sit in that thing? <laughs> you know, what, what, it, it looks so uncomfortable. Okay, it, it, looks, it looks good on Instagram um, or whatever, but this is not a chair I'm ever going to want to sit in. Right, right. Um, <laughs> and it's just this notion of um, style over substance, which I, you know, which I really struggle with. 
Um, and, and Dieter Rams just reduced that to, to the absolute minimum. And mm-hmm. I suppose it's the same for a lot of Japanese, you know, styled clothing. You know, it might just be like a long black uh, kimono based cape or something. And it's just beautiful the way the fabric, you don't need to cover it in logos and details and designs. Sometimes you can just let the fabric itself do the work by the way it drapes. Yeah. And I think some brands, so like an extreme example would be like early Takahiro Miyashita, the soloist, right? Where I had a couple pieces from the soloist and it just didn't fit with anything else I had. And I recognized, I was like, oh, they want me to be head to toe in the soloist. And then I have the the silhouette versus with applied art forms. It looks like you're like, look, just try the pants. Just get, you know, the cool pleat pants across the front or mm. the coat where it's, and I feel like that's much better to customers where it's like, okay, I can try one of these things and bring them into my wardrobe versus like the soloist. You go, you go big or you go home. <laughs> exactly. And I think you can, you know, I think we, right. Yeah, we yeah. sell a lot of t-shirts and cotton goods, you know, hoodies and so forth, of course, because it's the kind of, it's the staple, um, it's the staple of everyday life and um, it's the more afford- affordable items. But, you know, for us, it's really, it's outerwear and it's pants. That's that's really what we focus on. And I think what we're, you know, we, we make great t-shirts, by the way, and great hoodies, and we put a lot of effort into sure. those. But for, for me, you know, coming from an engineering point of view, it's the detailing and the complexity of uh, of the outerwear, yeah. which, re- which really excites me. Most Most of my archive uh, I would say my archive is 90% jackets. My man. <laughs> what, what, what is some of the stuff in the archive? I mean, I know you said helmet laying, which is like, that's like the equivalent of saying, I'm getting into cars and you start with, you know, vintage Porsche. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he was fantastic designer. And of course, he was referencing a lot of the old military garments mm-hmm. as well. So, so it was interesting for me. I mean, my first passion in garment collecting was the, was the vintage military stuff. So American army or British Navy. Um, and so I started collecting the, the helmet Lang pieces because I thought, well, this is interesting for me because this is showing somebody else's interpretation already of these utilitarian jackets. So I, you know, right. So it was interesting to see, well, how did he take a, uh, an original American Parker and how did he change it? What details did he change? Yeah. And it was the same, uh, it was the same for Margiela. I mean, Margiela menswear is very different from the, you know, from the women's line. It's a completely different mindset. Really. Absolutely. But I also collect strange items, which are not really for wearing. So there's a lot of life vests in my, uh, life my, vests. Um, okay. Life vests. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a, there's a yellow British life vest from the 1960s. It's cotton. Um, it's just full of details and all of these straps and things that hang down. It would have once upon a time contained, you know, gas bottles and it's got a whistle that hangs from it. And of course, being a life-saving device, it had to be constructed in the, just the, you know, the most bomb-proof way. So the stitching details, the reinforcement details, the button details. Mm-hmm. In fact, we use tape buttons on all of our outerwear, which is a different way of oh, yeah. putting a button on a garment. Because, because it'll never fall off. And of course, on a life vest, you know, if you're going to jump in the water and somebody stitched on a regular button badly and it comes off, then you're going to, you're going to sink and, and drown. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's strange how this life vest, this incredibly complex garment, um, actually really informed the construction details for all of our outerwear selection at the moment. Oh, 
Have you ever uh, met or hung out with Nigel Caborn at all? Well, Nigel's an interesting character, isn't he? And he's definitely, <laughs> That's to uh, say the least. <laughs> <it's>, uh, <laughs> and he's great, and I have, hu- I have huge um, admiration for him and what he's doing. Just his passion for vintage is, is almost a mirror, mirror image of, of the things that I I talked like. to him the other day, and, and one of the things I was like, is there any vintage stuff that you've been looking at that you really want that you haven't gotten? And he just paused for a good minute, and he was like, no, I think I got it all. <laughs> I was like, wow. He's got yeah. a lot. But of course, you know, we, you, you can't um, forget Massimo Osti's contribution. Oh, absolutely. In this, um, you know, in this kind of genre as well, because I think he, he was responsible for curating the largest collection of vintage, mm. uh, which is still out there somewhere in storage. <sighs> Doesn't um, that break your heart a bit? It's like collecting art. Well, I think it gets used. I think it gets used. I think it went to... Um, a guy called Paul Harvey, okay, uh, who who designed a lot for Stone Island and CP Company, right, right. Um, and I think Paul Harvey took his collection, and I, I suspect it's still being used quite a lot for, for for referencing. But even some of the CP stuff, where it's like, it's great that designers can go and view that. But you know, I love the V&A Museum. I'll just take that and set it aside. And one of the things I love is I get to understand history more through clothes. Uh, I mean, I'm a huge history buff. I love, uh, you know, I don't love World War II, but I love what happened and how culture evolved and the the stories and how people, you know, rose to the occasion from it. And seeing how clothes were designed based around that. You know, I had the the grandson of one of the Alpha Industries guys go in there and he was like, yeah, we were designing clothes, but like the, what was informing the design were all choices for military. And, mm-hmm. you know, with CP company and all those guys, like I would just love, and obviously it takes money to do this, to see an exhibit of this stuff because I can go to the VNA and I can see how different eras wore different things and like sabers and, you know, but I would love to see that for basically like, you know, the sixties through the nineties, you know, I mean, and that's an era that I was around for a part of. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, interesting. I think CP company have just finished doing an exhibit. Gee, are you kidding me? Kind of archive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I put my foot it in my mouth. It was quite a big deal. There was, there was a lot, you, you should Google that because I think, you know, there was quite a big deal, quite a big noise created around that displaying their archive. Here it is, the 50th anniversary exhibit. Son of a beast thing. Well, maybe it needs to come to America. <laughs> maybe it's coming to America. You could, you could catch it. Um, but, but it's interesting. I think, you know, you mentioned this kind of... I, I read a really interesting book a few weeks ago called Today There Are No Gentlemen. Writing this down. And it was written at the, um, it was written, I think, at the end of the 70s or the mid-1970s. And it was a document, it was really an an analysis of how fashion had developed Mm. in England, in London, um, after the war. So it took you through all of those uh, subcultures, uh, teddy boys, you know, the Edwardian style. Yeah. And because it was written in 1975, the information was so fresh, you know, it's not like something which has been regurgitated 400 times on internet blogs. Right. And, and the reason that I picked up that book was because it was the book that Malcolm McLaren uh, read uh, and referenced when he was starting his kind of foray into fashion with Vivian Westwood. Mm-hmm. And I'm a huge fan of them, you know, the McLaren and Westwood and, and, and everything they did in their shops on the King's Road is, is fascinating to me with the, uh, the handmade t-shirts and the screen printing that they were doing. Right. Um, 
So I would really, if you're interested in the kind of the evolution of fashion as we know it today, I think that's probably one of the most informative and readable books uh, I've ever read on that subject. Oh, wow. Thank you for that. What, what are like three brands that someone is explaining your brand? I mean, you kind of mentioned VisVim, but like they mentioned these companies and you're like, oh, you get me. You got it. You, you understand. Yeah. I think VisVim's the mm-hmm. easiest. Uh, I think Nigel Caborn would help people understand things very quickly. Although Nigel's very, um, he's very anti-fashion. You know, he, 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 he says, I'm not a fashion company. I'm a clothing company. Oh yeah. Um, I think we're slightly different from Nigel's style. Um, I, I think we're slightly different in the way that we present our brand. I think it's, uh, we, we're inspired by vintage, but I think we present as modern. Right. Um, Whereas I think Nigel's very happy to kind of occupy that, that vintage yeah. world with, with the garments that he makes. Um, uh, other than that, it's, it, it's a tough one. It's a tough one um, because we're kind of our, our own thing. Like I say, there's a lot of Japanese it's like a labels. like 10C or Margaret Howe or something. When, when I saw the outerwear, I thought of 10C a bit. Well, that, that's um, interesting because um, 10C is a company that was started by Paul Harvey, who I just referenced, yeah. <laughs> yeah. who is the brother of uh, Mikey Harvey, who is the editor of the magazine. Because uh, I, I publish a car magazine called The Road Rat. Right. And, and, and Mikey Harvey, his brother, is the... Is the editor? Oh snap! I've I've, I've strangely never met Paul, but I know that we would have a, a lot of um, a lot of things to talk about if we did meet. Yeah, yeah. I I had the ten C. It was like the like the bomber in liner, the shearling liner, mm-hmm. and then I had the fishtail, and I wore that thing into the ground. But it was tough to travel with because it, there was a a wire, like a metal wire around the hood. Uh, you know, like old, uh, old vintage yeah. things would yeah. have like a big piece so you of metal. Squeeze it into shape. Yeah. Yeah. So you could do it in the shape and people at the airport would always, you know, I remember one time a, a, a security officer was trying to ask me to remove the metal from the coat. Yeah. You know, I mean, I went through the thing. It was fine. There's no weapons in it. Right. But he was like, can you take this out? I was like, it's in the coat. It's, and he's like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get it. So you got it through in the end, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. Oh my God. Hell yeah. That thing's too expensive. I'd change my flight. But like, yeah, he was, um, he got, I was trying to explain to him that. Yeah. Like I was like, no, it's, it's so then you can shape your shape, the hood over your head. And he was just like, just get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) But I think 10 C is a good reference point too. Do you know what 10 C stands for? You know what? I don't think I do. It stands for the emperor's new clothes. Oh shit. Okay. Because I think that was Paul, you know, I, I get this information from Mikey because Paul Harvey was, again, like me, this is, it's about designing clothes which don't, which don't sit amongst fashion. It's not off the moment. It's not going to look good, good today and then terrible tomorrow, or it's not going to be in next year. Right. Um, it's just about making long lasting, beautiful chic clothing. Yeah. I mean, cause I feel like that's in terms of the release schedule now, right? Like. Fashion used to be extremely seasonal. You'd have autumn, winter, spring, summer. And now it feels like a lot of brands are also kind of, because um, obviously that, that eliminates the Southern Hemisphere when you live by that design, right? But yeah. now um, people are making just collections, and I'm air quoting that word, where it's just like we have collection one and there's some summer and some winter in there. That, that's right. And that's, that, that's what our focus is. Yeah. I can't think of doing anything more stressful than trying to drop two huge collections every year. Well, and then 
retiring them. And that's the heartbreaking stuff, right? Or like burning them. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's not forget about that because, you know, if, if you are, if you're doing, if you're playing into that fashion calendar, you know, you're making all of these garments and huge quantities, you've basically got a window of two, two and a half months to try and sell it as much as you can at full retail price. Mm-hmm. Then everything goes into the sale. You try and move as much as you can in the sale. Then stuff's going to go to TK Maxx. You have TK Maxx over there? Yeah, it's TJ Maxx here. Okay, though. TJ Maxx. Yeah, Max. it's the same. And yeah. then whatever else, you know, a lot of luxury brands, they don't want their clothes to end up in uh, retailers like TJ Maxx. And, that, you know, so there's a big thing at the moment about, you know, trying to stop these labels, you know, burning the excess garments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking because I know that like Chanel would spend money to um, track down you know, what other, any, any place where something could have been liquidated and either getting it back or destroying it. It's a very strange sense of, you know, control, isn't it? Yeah. That they want to have over, over their brand and their position in the, uh, in the upper echelons of, uh, luxury. And I, uh, I admire it, but I also kind of hate it. You know, I mean, just having a very tight control of your brand is like this double-edged sword. You know, I mean, so to talk about Visvim, for example, and I'll say this, we, I shared this conversation on like the members only pod, but part of this is here. Visvim has evolved so much that their higher end client, people like John Mayer, Clapton, those folks, um, sometimes have maybe been a little bit, this is not uh, a quote, but have been a little bit like frustrated that Visvim is sometimes easy to get for some folks. Right. And so what the Visvim has evolved to doing is they have um, line sheets and certain things that go over text messaging. And you only order through a special SMS like code. And then your phone has to be authorized. And So it's like a private members club. Yeah, but the communication is extremely uh, short. And, you know, it's almost like you have to have a secret knock on a door to buy a $30,000 robe. Well, this is the world that we live in now. People don't want to, I mean, I feel strangely, even through the pandemic, there seems to be so much money out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're a guy with money, and uh, you know, you don't want to go and buy something that everyone else can just go and get. Right. This is a real thing. So people want exclusivity. They want rarity. Uh, if it's an addition, you know, the smaller the addition, the better. It's, it's almost like you're buying, a, you know, you're trying to buy a piece of art now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, do you ever see applied art forms going into something where, you know, your hand signing, you know, the clothes like, uh, yeah. And we've done that. And it's something that we talk about a lot and it it plays into where we are right now as a brand, because we're producing in small quantities anyway. So if we make a hundred of our modular Parker systems, we, 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 what we should have done is numbered, you know, numbered them all and Mm. signed them all. Okay. Um, and I think we've recognized that and going forward, you know, we're in the process of reworking certain styles and we're in the process of waiting for new garments to, uh, to arrive. And, uh, just this idea of hand finishing a garment with, with a piece of writing or a handwritten number is something that we're definitely going to push into. Yeah. I feel like, especially for folks who, you know, are into the rarity and into the exclusivity and it's where it's like, I, I can't. I'm not the guy who's going to send the text message to buy a $30,000 robe, but I can, you know, but I am the guy who likes the attention. 
you know, and right. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll just be honest, I'm a vain, awful person at times. And it's just like, so being able, you know, to, to know that like, oh, you still have this, this sort of connection or access, right? Because I also feel a lot of clothing brands now, it's about, it's about access. It's about connection. Mm. You know, so many of my friends will wear a brand because they also were like, oh yeah, that, you know, oh, it's my friend, he designs it. And you're like, yeah, he just follows you on Instagram. He's not really <laughs> But like the, the access is very much a part of it where people are going to be like, oh yeah, oh, Guy Berryman, he's, yeah, he's a friend of mine. He, he made this coat. You know, he signed it. You know, he signs all my stuff. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting in the digital age is there's so much noise now when we're, we're all being marketed to on social media every single minute of the day right um so it is harder to uh, and there seems to be a uh a feeling that we're all moving towards solely you know e-commerce and in terms of the way that we uh discover and buy and buy clothing mm. but i i actually over the last few months i i've really realized that that's just not the way forward and um you know, for me, I think events are going to be important for applied art forms. We did our first pop-up store in London yeah, it looked uh, a week incredible. or so ago. Yeah. And just the noise that it generated, if not outright sales, right. uh, just the noise that it generated and the fact that people who had been following the brand finally got a chance to come down and see these garments for themselves and to, and to feel the qualities and to try them on. I just, it really hit me how important that is always going to be and fashion. You know, you need to feel stuff, you need to try stuff on. And um, one of the things that I've always been very keen to do, and it kind of plays into this, you know, VisVim, not exclusivity thing, but just storytelling. Storytelling, you know, know, I'm a musician, I'm hugely passionate about music. And, you know, when I was a teenager, what made me want to become a bass player was soul music and funk music and Motown. And that was really where it all started for me. So I'm trying to inject slowly music back into uh, applied art forms as a theme. And one of the things that I really want to do is start a club night. We've, we've got a little sub-brand that's just beginning to form within applied art forms, and it's called Poison Candy. It, there's no reason for it to be called Poison Candy other than those two words popped into my mind, and I, <laughs> I liked it. That's great. That's all um, you need. Strong what, decision, move forward. <laughs> what, I've, what I've decided is Poison Candy is going to be, uh, it's going to be a club night. It's going to be something which we can base events around. It's going to be about music. It's going to be about getting people together and inviting people down under the umbrella of the brand, un, under the umbrella of applied art forms. And it's not going to be about come down to this event and maybe we'll try and sell you a jacket. Right. It's simply going to be come down hang out with us. You might meet some like-minded people. We're going to have fun. Um, we're going to have some great music. Um, and, and we're just going to be together. And we're not going to try and sell you anything. You know, because I think this b- building this community around the brand is, is, is just so important in this day and age because I think we're losing sight of the fact that human beings need to be together. When I think about what keeps brands alive, is not so much the brand telling the story. It's the fans of the brand building a community around it. It's just so important. It's, you know, like I said, we launched the brand in the, in the middle of the pandemic. So we really have had no opportunity yeah. for over 12 months to actually do a physical event. And it was just so important. And you know, I, I feel that actually the, the, the way forward for retail um, 
is not necessarily online. You know, I think it's about concept stores. Yeah. When I think about, you know, I think Dover Street Market do it really well because you want to create a space, an environment, or Colette in Paris, which is no longer there, was just one I know, RIP. But for me, I think it's a very difficult proposition to have, for a brand to have a store solely selling your own brand's products in there. Yeah. I think in order to get people into a space, you need to offer them more visual treats. So if, if, if Applied Art Forms ever did a store, I would actually be making a concept store where we curated uh, a selection of you know, other brands, other types of object, might be pieces of artwork or photography or books or magazines. Yeah. Uh, to, to, to make it an experience or to give people a reason to walk into a space and um, actually have more on offer than just a single brand's product. Yeah. I mean, I remember Kitsune, that was kind of, I mean, they had a label too, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, right? Didn't Kitsune, the clothing? Yeah. Yeah. So they had a, they had a label for music. They had um, a cafe, which I feel like now is a bit more of a, a norm. You know, you look at, uh, I don't know when the last time you were in New York, but if you were cruising down Mulberry Street and seeing Ame, Leandor, which is just... It's blown up. Yeah. It's insane. It's huge, you know, and it's, there's a cafe aspect and it's, it's become just a place to hang out. Yeah. And, and then well, you're you buy clothes people, later. <laughs> you, you, you're, you're, you're creating a community around you yeah. uh, where this community can come in and they can buy cool clothes or they might buy some vinyls that, yeah. that have been curated. I feel in this day and age, because we're surrounded by so much noise and so many things and so many brands and so many objects, it's becoming more important for people to become curators. Mm. You know, people whose job it is to actually sift through all of this noise and say, okay, I'm going to pick this piece out, this piece out, this brand, this brand, and put it into one place. Because I think there's a certain type of consumer who doesn't want to do that work. They just want to walk into a cool store. And Colette was the kind of perfect Absolutely. Uh, prototype for this because you knew you didn't have to look for anything. Uh, across different, you know, genres or different types of objects or different types of brands. You know, you could just walk into Colette and and you really appreciated that sense of curation and everything in there was great. And I think, you know, with the Ame, you know, now you can go and get great coffee <laughs> and buy a great buy a great jacket. You know, and there's always cool people hanging out in front of that store. Yep. And it's just a scene. Um and I suppose it's similar to just Building a universe, you know, if, like if you're into cycling, you can go to Rafa, you know, you can get your magazine, you can buy your clothes, they have stores, they have coffee shops, or even Houdinki, you know, that's another one. You know, if you're into watches, Houdinki, they've got you covered. Yeah. So I think brands are pushing more and more into this kind of 360. We're going to be this cool brand for you. We're making clothes, but we're also going to, you know, give you a, an oat milk latte. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I'm... I'm more okay with it than I thought, especially knowing, you know, from like, I sound like an idiot saying this, but like doing my own research, God, I hate that phrase right now, um, where I'm like, oh, but like Guy is into architecture and he's into design. And so I want to know what's the chair that he has in there. Why does he have that chair? He's not a George Nelson guy. Why is he like Mies van der Rohe? Like what, you know, what are all those things? And what's great is that allows me as a consumer and everyone else to have almost like more of an empathetic relationship with a brand versus 
because it's like, oh, you get me, you like the same food I like, you like the same, you know, and therefore it even allows brands to introduce mm. new SKUs and new clothes that already are accepted. I mean, Visvim is is a great example. Everyone loves Hiroki Nakamura so much and all the stuff Visvim have done. They can make a power adapter. Supreme, another example. Yeah. Where it's like, I, I like it just because I've spent ages living in this world and wanting to associate with it further. So interestingly enough, because we talked about design and chairs and stuff, you're, you made the applied art form store. I'm air quoting that. What are the chairs that are in there that sit in the design language of applied art forms? Wow. Uh, minimal. Um, minimal. So it's going to be something like Mies van der Rohe. Uh, possibly Eames. Okay. Um, uh, Le Corbusier. Oh, hello. Okay. Could, could be something, something, you know, I, I love concrete. So, you know, I, I, I always imagine the applied art form store is going to involve a lot of poured concrete. Nice. Polished? Wooden, sh- wooden shuttering. Um, so you get the wood texture in the walls and so forth. Yeah. Um, but, it's, you know, it's something I'm really looking to do in one day is, des- is designing a store. Um, because then I can just unleash a whole bunch of ideas that I've been carrying around with me for, you know, the last 25 years. Yeah. That it's funny. Cause like, I think a lot of my friends, I mean, I'm 36 and a lot of my other friends have kind of like hit this age now where I feel a lot of us are, you know, they're graduating into cars and watches and the thing. And I've recently, you know, have hit furniture love. I mean, we, we, we had a pandemic move and I was in New York for 16 plus years and we just moved to the Midwest. And I'm just kind of commuting to the to New York, and I'm like, oh, now I get to kit my house out with furniture. Oh, it's dangerous, huh? It's expensive. It's awful. And first it, dibs, yeah. Do you, do you go in first dibs? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, and it's but here too in the Midwest, you can go to estate sales, and I truly mean this, and find gold. And people, I bet you know, like I went and I was like, oh, these are four Victoria chairs. And they're like, yeah, you can, I don't know. They're like, is, is 100 too much for these four? And I was like, no, that's great. <laughs> so it's like, I got four wow. wire Bertoia chairs from the mid-70s for 100 that's bucks. What, that, that's, that's what happens. You know, those chairs are probably, you know, if you go to those Los Angeles um, mid-century showrooms yeah. and they're going to sell you one single one of those chairs for 5,000 bucks. Yeah, it's nuts. All they're doing is going to, you know, like these estate sales and, and picking them up for you know, 25 each. Yeah. I maybe, did. maybe not quite that extreme, but you know, you, do you know what I mean? It's oh, great yeah. that you're there and you can, and you can have access to that, you know, that kind of sale. That's, that's fine. I mean, I'm a huge treasure hunter. I've always been somebody and I still am fascinated by going into thrift stores and clearance sales and just finding, like you say, treasure. There's, there's no, there's no greater thrill. I mean, e- eBay was extremely dangerous for me when that really came on the scene oh, because I then I could, then I could do it without even leaving my chair. Yeah. I was going to say you, you're like flying through my questions here. Cause the next question is what was the last like great find that you had? Oh gosh. Um, I collect stencil machines, old 1940s, 50s, 60s stencil machines. Interesting. Which is the, that kind of writing which you associate with military, I guess, or cargo boxes. Yeah. Um, and stencil machines were invented really in the 1930s to help cargo being 
labeled as it was moving up and down the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. So, be- you know, before this kind of stencil machine was inve- invented, people were having to kind of make, you know, hand carve stencils out of pieces of brass, which was extremely uh, time consuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do each stencil. So the, so the stencil machine, which is kind of, it's got this central dial and you turn it to the character that you want and then you pull down a big handle and it punches it into a piece of card and then it slides it along so you can pull the next character down. Um, and it kind of automated it. You know, it, w- it would have been like the iPhone of the day. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so these things, these things are generally made from cast iron. They're extremely heavy. Um, they always need a bit of um, TLC to get them working properly. But that's something that we do in the label is we actually, you know, we, we quite often will open up a T-shirt style and say, okay, you can buy this T-shirt and you can add personalization to it. So we personalize people's initials on the back of the neck with um, with our vintage stencil machines. Oh my God, that's great. Great idea. So I think the last thing I bought was another one. <laughs> got I've got four or five already, but when I find them on eBay, I just kind of can't. I can't resist buying them. Where do you put them? Just, I mean, you have a storage facility, I take it? Well, I've got a studio that I work in at home in in, in the UK, and we have some over in the uh, design studio in Amsterdam. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, What is the last album you heard that obviously wasn't Coldplay Um, that you liked? Do you know, that's a really easy question to answer. Um, there's There's a British artist called Sam Fender. I don't know if you've checked him out yet. And he has released his second album. I believe it's his second album. And it's called 17 Going Under. He's from the north of England. Uh, he's heavily inspired by um, Springsteen. Oh, um, okay. But, but his, his songs are his songs. And he's got so much soul. And it's, I, I listen to a lot of jazz and funk and, and soul music from the 60s. And I don't really keep up with what's going on in, 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 in modern day music so much. But this is the first time that I've um, heard songs by an artist, which has really turned my head. Mm. And to the point where I listen to his album basically on, on repeat throughout the whole day. Holy cow. In the house. That's a which massive Which I haven't done since I was like 15 years old. He's, <laughs> he's brilliant. Wow. Sam Fender. Okay. Yeah. I will, I'll definitely put that on there. Um, if you were going to make a YouTube how-to video, what would it be? Um, boy, what's your answer for this? Just to give me some context. Oh, shit. No one ever flips you it on me. <laughs> um, um, it would, it would be know. about what how to set the date and wind your watch correctly. It would be the yes and no's of watches because so many people are well, like... I would like to see that video because <laughs> I have no clue, you know, especially on some of my watches where you have to, you know, you wind, wind and wind and wind the thing for hours. Yeah, my fidget spinner is an old Tudor uh, oyster prince from like the, you know, early, early 60s. And, I, and I'm like, so like, as I do pods, I just sit with it in my hand and sometimes I'll like pop the crown and wind it or whatever. It's a worthless watch. It's been redialed. But the only thing that's <laughs> worth money is the, is the brevet crown. <laughs> but, oh, I see. But yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's cool. I, I was about to get rid of it and I met, this is not a flex. I met Laurent Ferrier and he was like, your watch is beautiful. And I was with Ben Clymer of Hidinki at the time. And Ben's like, can't get rid of that now. <laughs> I was like... I was like, well, maybe he was just trying to be nice. 
Very cool. Yeah. But look, unfortunately, I'm not sure what I have to share with the world on YouTube. YouTube kind of scares me, to be honest. In fact, video, being on camera kind of scares me. I'm very happy to be talking to you on a microphone, but, but, you know, put a video on me and everything just kind of goes a bit quiet. Well, you chose a hell of a profession for (laughs) for someone who's... Well, but it's strange because I'm very happy... And I think a lot of people get this, you know, I'm very happy standing up on stage in front of 50 or 70,000 people in a stadium playing my instrument. Hell yeah. But if you give me a microphone to do a speech at a wedding in front of 50 people, forget it, I'm dead. <laughs> I just can't do it. What if they're like, well, here, hold this bass and now do the speech. <laughs> and play a tune. Well, that would be, that would be weird too. But, um, but you know, it's... it's um, I could do a video on stenciling. You know, I could show people how these stencil machine works. There you In go. In fact, I have, I have done those, not on YouTube, but I have on our Applied Art Forms um, Instagram. I have kind of demonstrated our techniques for putting somebody's initials on the back of a t-shirt. Well, there you go. What is a movie or book that when someone mentions, you feel they understand you? Well, the movie, which I feel has always had the most resonance with me for reasons that I still don't fully understand is uh, Kubrick's 2001. Um, Oh, yeah. I still don't get it, (laughs) but I still love it. (laughs) Thank you for saying that, by the way. There's a lot of movies, any Criterion movie I will will watch, and everyone's like, what'd you think? And I'm like, you just like it because it's an A24 movie or whatever. And and I'm like, I don't know if I get it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they are generally, it's a great, great, great brand yeah um but 2001 i I think 2001 is considering it was made in the late 60s it still looks remarkable yeah in the way that everything which followed it kind of looked cheap and cheesy with the exception of a few things although i have to say um i I did read uh the book dune or or dune yeah yeah yeah. pronounce it dune or dune i don't know i think we said tomato tomato so 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 so, (laughs) so, you know i was a big fan of dune um and I went and watched the movie a few weeks ago, and that absolutely blew my mind. That is such a visual treat. Well, I mean, did you you watch the Denis Villeneuve uh, or Villeneuve one? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The new one. Because yeah, the not the one from the eighties with Sting. <laughs> so that's a di- that's a different that's a slightly different <laughs> proposal. Yeah. Very very true. I mean, Denis is like. A god, jeez! Uh, I mean, he's just an incredible like world builder. <laughs> um, so that was you know, so people that have people have that have read that that book and understand that book get it. And I didn't realize I grew up when I was a very small child. I fell in love with Star Wars. You know, from the age of three or four years old, I basically watched Star Wars every single day. And when I read Dune a few years ago, it kind of made me realize that. Everything in Star Wars came from that book. For real? I didn't even make that connection. Yeah. Everything came from that book. Oh, damn. For sure, George Lucas read Dune. I mean, I, yeah, that makes sense. Not to detract from Star Wars at all, but it, no, was just yeah. a kind of, it, was, it was just really interesting for me after all these years to kind of read Dune relatively recently to go, ah, okay, this is kind of where Star Wars came from. Well, there, there's a joke about George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones in the sense that... Um, you know, because people would always reference Tolkien and he would, he would start to get upset about it. And he was like, yeah, I did like Tolkien. But what I hated about Tolkien is he's like, what happened with all the orcs? Where did they go? What was the government? They just went into war. They spent a bunch of money. Who paid for that? You know, he's like, what was the uprising? You know, and it was like, he was upset with what he thought wasn't complete. 
at the end of Return of the King. Right. You know, he's like, so just all, what did they murder all the orcs? Did they, you know, and there were some loose endings to tie up. Yeah. I mean, I read those books a long, long time ago and you know, they were very, Game of Thrones is so digestible. Yeah. Lord of Rings, Lord of the Rings is, you've got to work at that to get through it. Yeah. But it's brilliant. They're both brilliant in different ways. Yeah. I mean, those, those books, I, I went nuts reading, um, what is the last watch or what's the watch you wear the most as you're, you're a watch guy? Uh, the watch. I, so I'm like you, I have, I have a few watches. Yeah. Um, I felt like I should collect them because I like, I, I collect cars, I collect magazines, I collect books, I collect art books. I, you know, I'm a collector. Mm-hmm. And so I do have a small collection of watches, but I only ever really wear one watch, which is, um, which is my 1972 double red sea dweller. Hell yeah. Well, that's a good um, one watch to have. And, um, I have other watches, but, but this is the one which just, it just feels like, it just feels like an event. It feels like a moment every time I put it on in the morning. Yeah. I think from a design point of view, it's just exceptional. It's a beautiful dial. It's a great size. I, I, I don't love the way watches have kind of, uh, case sizes have, you know, increased and getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. I think, I think the male human wrist has stayed pretty much the same size throughout humanity. Yeah. Um, um, so these watches were, you know, designed back in the day to, you know, to fit the wrist perfectly. So I think there's a, tre- a trend towards bigger case sizes, which is just, to be honest, a bit kind of show-offy. Oh yeah. Anything over 40 millimeters is, is heartbreaking to me. Like I, I can't, I can't really wear it. And I, I'm more of like 34 to 36 and that's just kind of like my sweet spot. Yeah. I, well, I agree, but but this watch is um, th- th- this is the one that I I, I go to. Nice, I mean, it's beautiful. I I've been I collect like vintage Seikos. I mean, I have you know a few Rolexes. Oh, I have and stuff a few here. of those. But like this Pogue is something that like I mm-hmm. wear a ton, especially because the um, when you adjust. So that's the uh, it, the Colonel Colonel. Um, uh, that Pogue uh, sixty one thirty nine. Yeah, was it Colonel Pogue? Was that his name? Was I don't know if he, he might have been a Colonel, but he was. Yeah, reach the rank of colonel. You're good. There yeah. you go. Yeah. So I have that watch, but I have the silver-faced. Oh, um, so you have the real, real one. That's the first, and, first Pogue. And, and the reason why I bought that watch was because I'm a huge fan of French racing driver called Francois Sever. Mm. And there's a, there's a very famous picture of Francois sitting inside his Tyrrell Formula One car wearing the, the silver-faced version of that watch. Oh, and wow. That's what made me want to buy it because I wanted to be just like Francois. <laughs> That's why we buy these tool watches, right? You know, oh, if you're yeah. wearing a, you know, if you're wearing a sub submariner, you know, you're basically kind of pretending you're a submariner. If you're wearing a speedmaster moon watch, you know, you're pretending you're an astronaut. We're all big kids at the end of the day, <laughs> aren't we? Playing playing dress up. True. <laughs> uh well, guy, I'm incredibly grateful for all the time you've given me. This has been a ton of fun. Oh, pleasure. Um thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much. It was great to meet you. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lal and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, do all the deals, follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. And if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us, leave us a message, and we'll put it in a future episode. The phone number's in the show notes. It's out there. Or email us at info at blamopod.com. 
If you want to hang out and join the Blam Fam, visit patreon.com forward slash Blammo, where we have tons of exclusive episodes in our amazing Slack community. All right, that's it for me. Happy 2022.